it just felt like dealing with people was draining and the making art was so fulfilling that at some point, you know, it was bound to happen that I was going to like gravitate towards what I was enjoying more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about finding your unexpected path to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a marketer, a storyteller, and an artist. And on today's show, we're talking to Brian Singer. Brian is an incredible graphic designer who left his career working for companies like Facebook and Pinterest after running his own design agency and going independent becoming a fine artist and working on a bunch of really incredible projects that bring together cut paper and installation work to really help people experience the world and their everyday in unique and different ways. Brian has been a design leader for much of his career. He's worked with AIGA. He's worked with amazing big companies like Adidas and others when he had his own agency. And we have a really great conversation about how he's gone about defining and creating his own unique creative career path. And he has great advice for people who are thinking about leaving behind their corporate job to go independent. And we talk about the thinking and the methods and the philosophy behind his artwork, and even a great new project he has around earthquake safety that he's getting out into the world. I'm really excited for you guys to hear the conversation with Brian Singer. Let's get started. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to talk to you. And I'm excited to learn all about your path today and share it with listeners. I want to start off by hearing a little bit about your fine art practice today, how long you've been at it and what it looks like. You do amazing work with cut paper and kind of reformulating the written word on the page. And then you do installations and signage and mm-hmm. all different things like that to really take people out of maybe their everyday lives to reconsider what's important. Talk to me about, about your, your art practice a bit. Oh. Well, I, you know, I, I've been making art pretty much my entire life. It was one of the things I enjoyed doing as a kid. I think a lot of people really enjoy it. Um, and in high school, the same thing. I went to college for art and design and ended up pursuing graphic design as a profession, mostly because there was a paycheck there. Right. Um, and it, it took a number of years. I would still make art on the side, but over time, um, I was making more and more art, especially when I moved to San Francisco in 2000. Um, I started doing it a lot more, even in my cramped, you know, 10 by 10 bedroom. Um, so you were always doing it on the side? So always doing it on the side, but it, it, I mean, as, as everyone everyone struggles with that time balance of like the things they want to do and the things they have to do. Right. And, um, so it was, it was always off. I'd produce like four pieces a year or something. It took a long time to get through them. Um, and then, uh, I was able to get a studio, which was sort of a game changer for me because it gave me a dedicated space for making the art itself. And since then I've been producing at, you know, 10 X the, the speed I was before I've got space to work. Um, and the projects, like with most of my life, sort of sprawl, <laughs> like I can't focus on one thing. So I'm always working on eight projects at once. And they range from, you know, cutting up a lot of books. I do a lot of work with books to more sort of social activism or social commentary projects where I'm doing something about homelessness or the economy um, or things like that. Yeah. Are they grant projects for the city? Are they personal projects that you 
just get out there and install? How, how much red tape do you need to cut through in order to get your work out in the public space? I'm, uh, I'm not great with the red tape. I feel like, like, you know, those scissors they give you in kindergarten that yeah. can't actually cut anyone. <laughs> like that's what I'm armed with when it comes to bureaucracy. Um, so I, most of my projects are self-initiated and self-funded. Um, there are instances where um, the first home street home installation I did was sort of that gorilla, wake up at four in the morning, go install it, see what happens. Hopefully mm -hmm. don't get in trouble. Yeah. Um, but that led to someone asking me to actually install it uh, for real um, in a lasting capacity, at least until the building gets uh, built. But it's, uh, it's on 16th and Folsom, and it's a building that was purchased by Meta and will be turned into low-income housing and art space. Um, and that led to me being asked to do a chain link fence installation on 29th and Mission, where that was actually funded by the Mission Bernal Merchants Association. They had received some, I guess, some beautification grant money to sort of deal with like the, you know, all of these sort of business thoroughfares like suffer if there's a lot of businesses that aren't there or if there's a giant hole where a building used to be with a right. charred building next to it. Right. Um, so it was, it was that one I wouldn't call, I didn't go out and seek a grant, but someone had obtained the grant and invited me to propose for, for that installation. What about this latest project you did around gun violence? Can you talk mm -hmm. to me about that project? Yeah, it was basically, is, if, when I started it, it was timely. And unfortunately, a year later, it's still timely. Um, and I have a feeling it will be for a while. Um, but it was really about um, gun fetishism in America. And what I did was I took um, people that had been assassinated and the weapons that were used, the guns that were used, and I, I basically print them onto the pages of books about that person. So for John Lennon, it was the pistol used to shoot John Lennon, all on books about John Lennon. Um, it's hard to describe on a, on a podcast. You kind of have to see it, but imagine printing it like you'd print a poster over and over and over again by hand, and then cutting up the books into slices, like half-inch wide slices, and then turning the paper on its side, so you're just looking at the edges, and then reforming the image of the gun based on just those slivers, just the edges of the paper. So when you look at it, you see the gun, it's a little fuzzy, um, but what you're really looking at is like thousands of pieces of paper lined up and the image being formed with just the edges. Wow. Um, my intent with it was really to make something that was aesthetically pleasing and beautiful about a completely horrific event, um, because I think that's a lot of what happens in America is that, you know, these horrific events happen, we send our thoughts and prayers, and then we move on, and then it happens again. So it's this sort of like, um, I don't know, juxtaposition of, of like, it's beautiful, but it's ugly. And yet there's these horrific things going on, but we do nothing about it. Like this constant, like, oh, it seems like we're okay with it. Right. So um, that was really the intent. And I, I didn't want to, I mean, there's enough people going down different paths with gun violence. Um, and I felt like this was a unique perspective and also fit with the sort of pursuit of the book cutting and printing that I've been doing. Yeah. And you talked about having, you know, choosing this path early on of, you know, a job that pays you money versus one that doesn't. And I want to get into that part of your earlier career as a graphic designer. But nowadays, how do you fund your life and, and your work? Is a good majority of these projects you're getting paid for or things are selling and it's able to be a consistent kind of stream? I'm always curious about how artists can either balance income-driven work or find ways to sustain themselves? 
Well, have, have you have you found any artists that are sustaining <laughs> them? Like people always say, well, talk about like, what is it like to, how do you succeed? I'm like, I don't know anyone who is. Like, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, for me, I like at this point in my life, I'm essentially eating into my savings every month. Um, I've sort of calculated it all out and I know how much I've saved and how long I have. Um, and then the income that's coming in comes partially from direct sales of art. Um, that's, I, I, so I obviously do spreadsheets for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you make the little pie chart and it shows you exactly the percentages. Um, it's something like 30, 35% of my income is from direct sales and 30 to 35 is from like design work. So I'll continue to take on small consulting gigs, things like that. Okay. And then there's, I don't know, 30% from sales through other people like galleries. And then there's a, like the random, like the $30 a year I get from Chronicle books for like selling the thousand journals book like they still sell like 30 a year so i still get 30 bucks so <laughs> that miscellaneous stuff that's great can we talk <laughs> about that project the thousand journal project sure. i know it it made its way to the san francisco moma and like you said a chronicle book collection mm -hmm. there was a documentary about it it's a really beautiful idea i'd love for you to explain this thousand journal project oh yeah so it was basically inspired by um, what people write on bathroom walls um, and what I observed in college, like the conversations that took place in public. Um, and also how many people bring Sharpies to the bathroom with them, like everyone. Um, and I, I found it really fascinating and I started photographing it. And when I graduated, I would go to other colleges and walk around and photograph their bathrooms, go to places like the Tornado and photograph there where people had written all over the walls. And um, I, I wanted to, I thought it'd be great to put together a book of that. But in thinking that through, I also wanted people to continue the conversations, like to be able to write in the book. Mm -hmm. And that idea evolved into, well, why do I need the photos? Why aren't they blank? Why aren't there a bunch of them? Why don't they travel? So the Thousand Journals Project was born and essentially took a thousand blank sketchbooks, you know, those like six by nine hardbound black sketchbooks. Yeah. Um, and I put them out in the world. Um, people that got them were supposed to write in them, draw on them, do something before passing them on in this sort of ongoing collaborative art form. Did you pick out the people who would receive them, give them instructions? Did you leave them places? Uh, all of the above. I, I put instructions in the journals themselves. So there was a rubber stamp told you what to do, had my email address and the URL. Um, and then for the first hundred or so, I just, I basically Johnny Appleseeded it. I went around the city and I left them it like in the bathroom at the Toronado or on a park bench or on Muni, things like that, expecting people to pick them up and do something with them. Um, after that, the second batch, because the website was starting to get traffic, people would email me and say, Hey, how can I help out? How do I get a journal? I picked 10 people in 10 different cities. I sent each of them 10 journals and they distributed around their city. And by that time, so many people were emailing me wanting to participate. I just said, okay, if you email me, I'll send you one. And of course that didn't work because there was too many people emailing me. <laughs> so I put up a sign up feature on the website. And by the time I got that up, there were 700 journals out in the world. Wow. There's 300 journals left and like 17,000 people signed up for the 300 journals. So they were in line. It was just kind of a mess of a good example of frustration. Right, right. <laughs> I just frustrated a lot of people because, you know, most of them never ended up getting a journal. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> this has been on display. It's, it's toured around at different establishments and museums and, and people can go see what what folks have written in? Um, so the website is just 1000journals.com and it has a lot of the imagery. You can sort of view it. And this is just what's available, what's been scanned or sent to me. 
Um, I still have about 35 journals or so in my possession. Those are the ones that ended up at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art or the Skirball in Los Angeles. So there have been shows. Uh, there's a documentary on it if, if you know, people are interested in you know, watching the story unfold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, been a, it, it's, it's funny. It's been 18 years since I started it. Wow. And I always said the longer it goes on, the more interesting it'll be when one comes back. So right. I'm still holding my breath for like, a journal to show up and have you know have it travel the world and been out there for 18 years to see what's inside it hi everyone i want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor general assembly they're an amazing organization with a campus here in san francisco and they have campuses actually all across the globe and the country and they offer courses in ux design data science if you want to become a developer or learn how to code They've got classes and workshops and boot camps and courses where you can take when you're in a job on nights and weekends or when you're between jobs and you really want to shift your skill set towards the next career that's going to have you doing something that you'll love. So I'm excited that we've got a special code to use at checkout for 15% off any class or workshop, and that's Making Ways. Just type in Making Ways at checkout and you'll get 15% off. So visit General Assembly's website. It's just General Assembly in the browser and then put a dot before the L-Y and you'll go right there. Let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the show. And so before you went full-on fine artist, you had this amazing career as a graphic designer. You ran your own agency you also worked with Facebook and Pinterest, and even as your own agency, worked with amazing companies like Adidas. Talk to me a little bit about those years, and I also want to hear about what ultimately drove you to say goodbye to the stability and the nice paycheck <laughs> of corporate life. Well, I think I think... You know, I'd, I'd worked at a number of design firms in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, from people you would know to people you'd probably never heard of. And at some point, you get to that point in your career where you're like, oh, I could do this. This, like, this isn't that hard. Like, I'm doing all the work anyway, right? Right. Um, which is, you know, that, 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 I mean, I think everyone in their maybe 20s or early 30s has this. They think they know everything. So I thought I knew everything. <laughs> Um, and it's great because that forces you into a situation where you're like, oh shit, I got, now I have a whole lot I have to learn. Right. Right. Um, and then you start appreciating the people that you were like, like, oh, they don't do anything. I'm like, oh, that's what they were doing that whole time. Yeah. So, um, I ran the studio for about seven years, spent a lot of time working with, you know, folks like Adidas or Apple or Chronicle books. Um, and that was great. Had worked with great companies, did some really fun projects. Um, and it was fine. I was, I had a studio, uh, actually not too far from where I am now. It's, uh, on, a was it 18th, 17th in York? Um, and it was, I mean, I worked eight hours a day. I made great money and I didn't have to stress too much about it. Yeah. And you had, uh, you had some employees or everyone was mostly kind of freelance, but a lot of them were very consistent. Yeah. I, I, I sort of, always had freelancers or contractors, um, some that stayed contracting full-time for a long time. Yeah. Um, and that's basically cause I hate paperwork and didn't want to deal with all the, <laughs> all the other, you know, anything that I can avoid paperwork with makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and then I just, I, with the studio, I just got to a point where I, I took a step back. I'm like, where do I want to be in 10 years? And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's something I just wasn't into it. 
like I'd get, I'd get fine projects. They'd be great. Hey, you want to brand this new startup? You want to do this, build another website. And at some point I was like, no, I don't really want to build another website. (laughs) Like that doesn't, it doesn't excite me anymore. Yeah. Um, So maybe I'd burned through all that. Like I've done it before. I don't really need to do it again. Right. Um, And started thinking about what like the big picture might be, what it would be to work at scale for companies that are like influencing or affecting lots of, lots of lives. And that's what led me to Facebook. Okay. And what was your role at Facebook? Um, I had a couple roles there, but mostly managing creative teams. So I was at the beginning, I was like, what is it? Head of, head of creative for B2B marketing, like a big fancy title. Yeah. Like, um, and managed a a team on the B2B side. And then I moved to the consumer facing side where my title I think was design manager. Okay. Same exact job. It's just, (laughs) right. Who who cares about the titles? Right. (laughs) Um, and yeah, it was just, it was basically managing the communication design team and the, and the stuff we did for product marketing and brand marketing. And were you doing a similar thing? You then you then left for Pinterest. I then left for Pinterest, and same situation, managing a creative team there. Yeah. And so, was there anything interesting about the new challenge of managing people within a large organization that felt like a reinvigoration of your career? And and was it kind of less designing and more managing? What was what was that kind of role like? Well, there's definitely less designing and more managing going on yeah. um, in, in all of those roles. Um, and I think that the major shift to Pinterest wasn't so much like, uh, it was a similar size team, similar makeup of people. Um, but it was working in a company at the time that was less than 300 people versus working at a company that was 6,000 and the intent of having a greater impact on what happens at that company. Um, it's hard to make an impact when you're like, you know, a little cog in a giant machine. Right. Um, and I was looking for that impact when I went to Pinterest. Yeah. And so at what point did you maybe get fed up or get tired with with these kinds of roles and have some kind of awakening about going a, a very kind of unique path of your of your own? And mm-hmm. and like what happened during that time? Did you have to go on a, a break and figure it out? Did you have a take this job and shove it moment or did you more plan out your your gradual kind of move to independence um it was it was definitely planned and i I think the seed that started it all was when i got the studio and i did that uh i did that when i was at pinterest and what happened when i got the studio was that i would spend my evenings and weekends there and i really enjoyed it like once you've got that space to really like work in and, yeah. and, and do the things that I really wanted to do, um, that sort of opened it up for like, well, why am I going to meetings all the time when I could be making shit? Yeah. There's and, something interesting about the space itself that, that kind of created that, that mental space for you. It's definitely like you put it separation of church and state. Like, right. Like if you, if you, when I worked out of my home, when I had my studio, my design practice and I worked out of my home it was like you know I'd get up I'd stumble into the desk I'd work on stuff I'd put on the tv you know once I had an office space it made home home and work work and that actually helped with me to like so I wasn't working till 10 p.m every night right the lines were too blurred yeah um so getting the art studio was great because it actually cleared out headspace like for dedicated like when I'm here I'm making Mm -hmm. um so I mean you compare that and there's nothing wrong with like Facebook or Pinterest. They're both great companies. Um, but when you compare how much I enjoy making 
to how much I enjoy, let's say, dealing with people. Like, let's face it, I'm not, I'm not a great people person. I don't have the soft skills that a lot of people have that succeed in those roles. Um, but you put me, put my head down and start, uh, start cranking out on design work or art and I, I can, you know, run with the best of them. So right. it just felt like the, the, the dealing with people was draining and the making art was so fulfilling right. that at some point, you know, it was bound to happen that I was going to like gravitate towards what I was enjoying more. And you, yeah. And you were going into one office and realizing how you felt. And then you were going into another office on the nights and weekends, your studio space, and probably feeling elated. Mm-hmm. And it started maybe to become more black and white of like, well, when I go here, it doesn't really feel good. When I go here, it feels amazing. So how do I spend more time in this other place? Yeah, that's exactly sort of how it starts. And then then it's like a pl- it goes into planning. Like, okay, if I want to do this, what's it going to take? How much money do I need to save? How, like starting to look at my finances, starting to make sure I'm like, being frugal with my money so I can save and buy myself a runway. Um, and that's basically what I did. I had it sort of all planned out and made sure that uh, when I left, like, you know, to the best of that I could, that the team was in good shape and had leadership and so forth. Um, because I still, you know, I'm obviously invested in both Facebook and Pinterest succeeding. They're both great companies. And I yeah. wish them, I mean, people ask me what I miss. I'm like, I don't really miss the work, but I do miss the people. Yeah. It's full of really good people. Yeah. And so how long did you build up the runway and the plan kind of? Um, well, the good news is that I've always been sort of frugal in general. So I had been saving for a while. Um, it was more of like now that I'm putting plans in place and calculating runway, um, just adjusting those, like tightening the belt just a little bit to ensure that, you know, when I got there. But, you know, it might have been nine months out or so okay. when I when I really took a hard look at how much I had saved and how much I needed to save yeah, and started trying to adjust and plan for that. That's great. And today you are doing your fine art. You're doing, I think it was like 30, 35% of <laughs> design projects as well, which help kind of fun things. And then you also work on these really interesting kind of standalone projects. And I want to learn a little bit more about Basic Safety Net, which is a new project that you've launched to be crowdfunded which is all about giving people as much education as they need around earthquake preparedness and especially in, you know, this part of the world that that is very important. Mm-hmm. So why did you want to start this project and and how's it going? Well, it years ago, um I was invited to do um a project with Good Magazine, and I think it was called Good Design or design san francisco or something anyway they partnered with aia and spur and they part they they took um creative folks designers industrial designers architects and they paired them with civic organizations to solve a city problem like an example would be what do we do with the embarcadero waterfront or what do we how do we solve the garbage can problem in san francisco it's not very efficient um i was paired with the red cross to solve um basically disaster relief supplies and their distribution throughout San Francisco, particularly in low-income and at-risk neighborhoods. And um, that project was super interesting and challenging and beyond anything that I would normally jump into as a, you know, a graphic designer. Yeah. But was also one of the more enjoyable because it was straight like research and analyze things, problem solving, come up with ideas. Yeah. And so it, it culminates in this presentation you give where I gave them all my, like broke down the problem um, gave them recommendations on how to solve that problem. And part of those recommendations um, were based on the fact that w- we're a city where we, we know this is, it's not if, it's when. 
right? The USGS has predicted like 72% chance of a 6.7 or greater quake in the next 25 years. Um, but most of us still aren't prepared. And that includes myself. And so what, what, what is the real issue there? And the issue is that we think that other people are going to take care of it. Like there's going to be a disaster. There's going to be a fire. The fire department's going to come put it out. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Like after Hurricane Katrina, like 50% of the police force didn't show up to work the next day because they had to deal with their own shit. So you combine that and combine these solutions I came up with. And it, it was something that sort of stuck in my mind. And then I decided to take the NERT classes in San Francisco. What's that? Neighborhood Emergency Response Training. It's a free class. It's like 18 hours. So you do it over a period of weeks. And it's put on by the San Francisco Fire Department. And it's a program that they initiated after Loma Prieta um, in recognizing that like, if there's a major disaster, like we don't have resources to support the entire city, like a hundred fires at once or like buildings collapsing everywhere. Um, so they're training citizens to be better prepared and to be able to help out in those situations. And those classes were great. Uh, I highly recommend it. I just went to the citywide drill a few weeks ago. Um, uh, just in recognizing that like, we're going to be on our own. <laughs> if something big happens, you're sort of on your own. So that sort of revitalized my interest in the topic. And I got to the point where I'm like, it's not that hard to like all the information's out there. It's on a hundred different websites. How hard would it be to gather that information, put it into like an airline safety guide, a trifold, mm -hmm. uh, get it translated. So it's in English and Spanish and then in English and Chinese and another version, and then figure out how to get those into every household. Because it's really, it's, it's really about having that guide around like after the quake. Yeah. Like, okay, so I think my building's collapsing and how do I shut off my gas? Where do I shut off my gas? Mm -hmm. You know, those types of questions. That used to, the yellow pages used to have some of that information in it, but like who has yellow pages anymore? <laughs> right. And I'm really thinking about the use case where the internet is down. Like where do you, where do you go to get that information? Yeah. And that's sort of what inspired it. And now I'm in the process of, both trying to crowdfund it, which is a lot harder than I thought it was, even though everyone said it's really hard to do. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm starting to talk to companies um, who might be able to support and fund the distribution of these to households for free That's and great. figure out how to raise the money that way. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to back the project and I'm excited for more people to, to hear about it. But I think it's an incredible thing to try to think about your own needs and your own kind of situation in the in the face of disaster and then try to you know educate as many people and uh and scale awareness and and preparedness in in this kind of way so i think it's a fantastic project for you to be putting together and, and getting out there oh, thank you yeah it, it's, it's one of those things where i have friends that are like well i know i know how to shut off my gas and i'm prepared i've got my kit and supplies and then I ask them like well do your neighbors because fire travels real fast in san francisco and it's not so much about you being prepared as your neighbors in your community, because in the major disaster, we're sort of all in it together in some way. So yeah. um, it's about making sure everyone's armed with the right information and can sort of help out where they can. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I want to get into some advice. You have led a really unique career, creative career. And I want to hear a little bit about some advice you might give to people who are thinking about going out on their own to pursue whatever passion might be the thing that they were doing on the side mm -hmm. all those years during their more maybe stable corporate career. What steps do you think people might want to take in order to maybe figure out 
what that passion could be and how to kind of formulate it into a work type thing and how they might go about stepping away from from that corporate uh, position that is so easy in a lot of ways to say yes to and to keep uh, getting those checks and and uh, working in that structure. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a challenge because A, we live in a very expensive city, um, and B, everyone's situation is slightly different. I'm, I'm, I don't have kids to take care of. I, don't, like, I am in a different financial situation than a lot of my friends who have responsibilities to take care of. Um, so it's, it's hard to give advice to those folks because you're like, oh, it was easy for you. You don't have a, you know, a mortgage payment and four kids. And, you know. um, but I would say that it pro- the first step is probably figuring out that the finance piece. Like, is there a way to make this happen? And if so, what is it going to take to do that? Um, Like save up, buy yourself a runway, you know, get rid of your, you know, Comcast for a year and that saves you some money. Right. Like I I do think that everyone chooses where to spend their time and energy and their money. And the more sacrifices you make on some of those nice to haves, but not must haves um, could go a long way in buying yourself your happiness you know, on the, on the tail end of that, when you, when you've saved up enough, um, once you figured out the finance, if, if you don't know what you're passionate about, I suppose it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> but you know, I recommend to people that, that whatever it is that you enjoy doing, just start doing more of it. Like, Oh, I wish I could pull out the paints. I don't have enough time for that anymore. And just start with something easy. Like a lot of people do the hundred day project. That's not easy, but it's a good motivator. Um, but the people that start painting again and enjoying painting again, paint more, you know, it's like a muscle that you forget to use. And once you're in shape again, like going to work out for the first time after three years kind of sucks, but then like three weeks into it, you start feeling really good. Right. Um, I think the same comes with probably creative pursuits. And so let that passion, let that creative thing take hold and you'll find it taking more and more hold over you. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't, then it's probably not the right thing to devote your life to. <laughs> right. Um, right. But when when you find yourself in a situation like, wow, I really love doing this. Let me figure out a way to do the, do more of this. Then that's when you start scheming on like, okay, what if I stop doing this? And you know, I actually I actually cut out my gym membership. That was me saving money. <laughs> right. I'm like I right. do push ups on my floor. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I just run. I run. Get out my door and 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 run versus uh, scheduling going to a place to. Yeah, to do it. That was seven hundred dollars a year in savings right there. So it's like yep. you you figure out how to how to make it work. And you've made a lot of you know sharp left and right turns over your career. You're constantly coming up with new projects and interesting art projects or you know civil projects to to put together. What kind of lessons have you learned about staying kind of hyper aware and nimble? in a, in a career and kind of not getting stuck on one, one track, what kind of mindset do you think you have and in your approach to career that makes you be able to kind of shift and wind, stay in tune with what you want to do and, and figure out the pieces to put together to make it work? Well, it it might sound like it's a, it's a good thing, I'm not 100% sure that it is. I tend to jump around um, and I tend to lose interest in things. So it's sort of that low attention span thing, um, which is helpful in that I get to explore a lot of things. And maybe that's how I found what I enjoyed doing. But 
you know, in the long term, it's maybe not so great for people that have like invested in building their career and are continuing to invest in that building that career for some long term goal. Like my personality wouldn't fit with that at all because I would throw that all away to go do something silly that makes no sense um, because I wanted to. Um, so I, I do have respect for people that are like, oh, I've been at this company for 15 years. I'm like, I could never do that. <laughs> that, that is amazing. Um, so yeah, I think it really comes down to uh, sort of <laughs> attention deficit disorder in some way. <laughs> and um, my inability to stay like, super engaged in something over really long periods of time i don't know if i'd be a good architect for example because those projects last forever right i'm like i would be bored and moving on to something else much quicker (laughs) (laughs) but you have figured out a career that at least caters to to that kind of mindset and that kind of uh lack of attention at least you've you've set up the pieces so you can jump from thing to thing project to project and know that once you're kind of excited about something you can at least go all in before you move on to the next yeah I, one of the one of the benefits of running a design studio is that every client is different every company is different has different needs and so it's always a new challenge right um whereas when you're in-house you're dealing with a, a single company and a single brand the entire time it's just a different set of challenges um and i think i as much as i wanted to invest in that because i'm like i've never you know when you're in an, a design firm you do work and then you throw it over the fence and they take it and you know, you never really, really get down in the nitty gritty of how to help a company be successful. Um, and then I tried that in house and it, it's fulfilling in a different way, but it right. also did not satisfy that. Like, uh, you know, like, Oh, squirrel. Um, it didn't satisfy that part of me. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing so much of your, your story. I think people are going to get uh, a ton from your experiences. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Brian Singer. Brian, thank you so much for joining the show. And I hope that everyone out there took away as much from my conversation with Brian as I did. You should definitely check out his work. Go to www.someguy.is to see a lot of what we talked about on today's show. Definitely check out the Thousand Journals project. Just go to a thousand journals.com. That's one zero 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 journals.com. And be sure to check out the Earthquake Preparedness pamphlet that Brian put together. It's a really incredible project, and it deserves the funding of people who care about safety and people who want to support these kinds of projects that are for the good of communities and people in cities like San Francisco. And that's at basicsafety.net. You can get all of those links and so much more at our official website, which is makingways.co. You can sign up for our newsletter where you'll get information about upcoming events and merchandise and behind-the-scenes information about our episodes. You can also go to our website to see the original illustrations I do of each of our guests, show notes, and so much more. Making Ways intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix, too. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on iTunes. We would so appreciate that. Or just share this with a friend or colleague who you think would benefit from hearing the stories that we're sharing on Making Ways. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.